0: You're listening to two guys talking wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Michael. On. Um well it's been
1: an interesting week. I would say a very interesting week if you're if you're following the Trump files anyway.
0: Uh I was more gonna talk locally because I, I I want to um just say that I think most people in Niagara have heard the, and most people listening to this podcast have likely heard the tragic news of the passing of uh, Taw's winemaker Paul Pender. And yeah, uh, uh,
1: that that was pretty uh, pretty sad, uh, pretty shocking. I think is is I, I think the word I would use definitely. Um, I was just working at my desk, and you had uh, texted me, and you said, "Did you hear about Paul?" And I said uh, no. Um, and then you forwarded me a, uh, a news clipping or something, and I, I I almost fell out of my chair. And I have a pretty comfortable chair.
0: Um, and yeah, th- we're we are going to go ahead with our our regular scheduled podcast. I don't want to spend a, a whole lot of time talking to this because I I wasn't close with Paul. He made some really great wines, and and a lot of pe- I know, just know, there's a lot of people listening to the podcast who. We're close with him, and I think it's important that we acknowledge it and uh, definitely send our condolences um, uh, condolences to, I guess, the entire industry for the people who
1: are, are mourning Paul's loss, and and those who were close to him, such as uh, uh, such as Allison, yep. uh, of Flat Rock, uh, his wife, obviously, and uh, the folks all at Taz, who uh, you know lost a great mentor, uh, a great winemaker, and a great friend. I guess uh, we have to start this podcast off on a sad note, but we're also going to get it off uh, on our legacy podcast uh, series. We haven't done one in quite a while, and we thought, you know, what a great uh, a great way to um, you know pay tribute to the uh, Ontario wine industry by bringing out another legacy podcast, and we thought. We have not been to the Lake Erie North Shore yet and talked to anybody there, uh, and so we track down one of the original gangsters from the Lake Erie North Shore, Sal D'Angelo. Sal, how are you? I'm good, Michael. Yourself? I'm good. Everything good out in BC? Fantastic. Excellent. So, Sal, uh, really, we should kick this thing off with uh, what got you into wine in Ontario in the first place.
2: What got me into wine?
1: Yeah.
2: I'm Italian. It's in our blood. Well, all Italians in my area with Italian heritage, I should say, I'm Canadian, but we had a common love of homemade wine. And the issue was who made the best? It was a friendly rivalry. So I grew up with it, helping make my dad make wine when I was 11 years old. But as I got older, I noticed some members of the family made better wine than others. The short of it is, I learned that the fresher the grapes, the better chance of making a better wine. Therefore, I sought out to grow the grapes, figuring you can't get fresher than growing your own. And this was probably early 70s. And then I read about Don Zeraldo and Carl Kaiser starting up a winery. So I got interested uh, in that, tasting their wines that they were making. And eventually I had made an arrangement with my neighbor who owned a couple acres behind me to purchase some land, and that fell through when he found out I was gonna plant grapes. He thought it was a commercial venture, so he increased the price tenfold, from 3,500 to 35,000. I figured, well, for that kind of money, I can buy a farm. So I put my house up for sale, start looking for land. And right around the same time, there was a visiting businessman from Italy who had visited Windsor. And I think it might have been one of those sister cities things. And the two businessmen got together and toured the county. And then it was released, I think a year later, they wanted to start a winery in Harrow. That became Colio Wines. And that announcement was 1979. I remember because I was still looking for a farm and I had an offer on a farm in 79, but I had an escape clause that if the interest rates went up over 19%, you guys ready for this? Yep. (laughs) Over 19%. I had the right to exercise an option to close, to cancel the deal. And because most farms are listed in the spring, but they don't close till the fall because usually there's a crop involved and this was 25 acres in uh, Malden Township i remember it was 96,000 no it was 110,000 for 90 it's 25 acres oh man yeah and the bank of canada was releasing the interest rate like they are now but back then it was every wednesday once a week and they kept rising and by not no by that fall it had hit 19% so I pulled the plug and let, let it slide, but kept looking. And uh, by that time, I got laid off from work. I was an electrician at Ford Motor Company, and that was the big crash in the auto industry. So I went back to university, to University of Western Ontario Teachers College, and became a teacher on my Visa card, may, I may add. Okay. And uh, when I grabbed... But while I was in college, teacher's college, I was still looking for a farm. And then I had uh, on my weekly visit to my dad who lived down the street. I always drove on concession five and I saw the sign and one thing led to another. And I ended up talking to the gentleman. And, of course, the rates started. They, they peaked at 22 or 23 percent. And then they started crashing real fast. And by 1982, they were down to about 16%. And by the time I closed on the property in May 83, they were down to 145 half. So I bought in at 14.5%. Now they give money away. But anyways, while that, that period between 80 and 83, while I closed, Colio had already announced construction of the winery. And I remember uh, driving down to the winery and introducing myself. And they introduced me to the winemaker, who was Carlo Negati. He has since passed on. And uh, Carlo asked me or told me he didn't speak much English. And uh, I said, well, I want to know if you want to buy any grapes. If my plan was to plant more than what I needed, but I would have pick of the of the best for my wine, and then sell the rest to Colio Wines, help them to pay my increasingly time consuming hobby, shall we say? And Carlo, I remember Carlo's reply. He said, "Depends on what kind." And I said, "Well, I would plant what you want." He okay. invited me in. He said I was the first farmer he talked to in the three years that he was there that actually approached him before they planted. Because everybody was planting uh, hybrids, Seval, Vidal, Foch, Baco, mostly Seval and Vidal because they're easier to grow and produce more. He said I was the first one that had asked him before I planted. So we kicked off a friendship and uh, we became friends and then he became my mentor helped me in learning the uh, lab side of the wine industry, checking for different parameters and making wine. They had a laboratory there, and the years that he checked my wine, he never charged me once. And then eventually we became peers, and after that we actually became very, very close friends. He helped me out quite a bit. While this was going on, Pelee Island winery was announced well they took a different route instead of opening a commercial winery and then buying fruit because colio is in harrow they're in the same location now they were when they started peely bought acreage on the island and planted i think 400 acres of grapes eventually now i believe they have 600 you have to check with walter on that and uh They were going to put the winery on the island, but then at the last minute, the investors decided to put it in the mainland in Kingsville but have the vineyards on the island. So I went and introduced myself and met the winemaker. Uh, His first winemaker was also named Walter, but I don't remember his last name. The president president of Peleons, Walter Schmorans. Walter and I are close friends, but I don't remember the first one.
0: So Sal, I met the two of them. Pardon me. Sorry, Sal. uh, If you don't mind me me jumping in here just a bit, I I have a couple of 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 questions. I think just to kind of streamline a little bit here, because I think it's it's fascinating that you um you talk about like the love of wine, and it's been one of my favorite things about moving to Toronto is meeting all the the people of Italian heritage talking about making wine with the family, and you identifying that certain people's wines were better than others, than you talking about growing grapes. But apart from the fact that you worked with, um, with Colio to figure out what it was you were going to plant, was there any type of wine that, like, you, when when you made it or when you tasted it, you were just like, okay, this makes sense. This is this is better, like, this Cabernet Franc or this Merlot or this Baco tastes better than me going and, and buying the, the must or buying the, the juice from a, a wine shop and, and processing that. Like, what... Was there something that was a, a, a specific turning point where you didn't want to just work on growing grapes, but you knew the difference between grape A and grape B?
2: Yeah, at the same time, because of my background, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a research-holic. I had been reading books on varieties and the difference between Lumbresca hybrids and vinifera. And obviously the vinifera were the better varieties for winemaking. But locally... To get fresh grapes, uh, we didn't buy must or juice. The Italians wanted grapes. And most of them went to Windsor and bought the uh, grapes in those wooden 36-pound crates from California. And one person I had met had told me, by the time those grapes are picked, sold to a broker, warehouse packed, put on trains, shipped back to out east, said they're already 10 days old by the time they get here. And I had asked this particular family member what he did, because his wines were always the best in the family. He says, well, i have my grapes flown in from Napa Valley. I couldn't believe it. He would spend all that kind of money, have them flown in from Napa to Toronto, and he would drive from Amherstburg to Toronto. It's four hours, pick up his grapes, come back, and then process them the same day. That's when I knew to be fresh,
0: the best then is to grow it. And what kind of grapes were better? What what kind of grapes were those? I'm I'm guessing probably Merlot or Cabernet Sauvignon?
2: Yeah, that's what he was buying. But then I found a grape in Leamington called Merchelle Foch that a farmer had. he had three very long rows. I remember uh, I bought the grapes fresh, picked picked up at noon, processed at two. And the wine that year was phenomenal. Much, much better than what everyone else had. So I knew it was on to something good until it was the next year or the year after. The gentleman didn't give it to me the same day they were picked. I remember. And the wines were a little off. So there was more to this, just getting them fresh. It also meant how fresh and storage. How was those grapes stored in between being picked and given to me, the customer? Because I told him I would pay him whatever he wanted. But when that batch didn't turn out as good as the other one, and you could smell the VA, volatile acidity, then that's when I got serious about buying a farm.
1: Hmm. So what were the grapes that Carlo had you plant?
2: Well, he gave me a list uh, of vinifera. Merlot, Cap Franc, Cap Sa, Malbec. But it was mostly all vinifera. And then I had asked him, there's no hybrids on here. He said, no, the vinifera are better. I said, I know, but the hybrids will produce more and they are more cold tolerant. Because we're cold here in the county. I have a talk to other growers who are already growing some grapes. He said, well, if you're going to grow uh, hybrids, I would recommend Blanc and Vidal. And I noticed there was no foch on the list. So I did plant Foch, and he asked me why. I said, well, that's that's the grape I use to make my wine." He said, "I'll be damned if I'm going on a vineyard and not be and having to still go out and buy grapes. I got to be able to grow what I make my wine from." And then uh, eventually I met Paul Bosch, a Chateau de Charms. I think he's still alive. Yep. And. Uh, He was funding his winery by starting a nursery, taking cuttings, grafting them on disease-resistant rootstock, growing it out in the field, selling the the vines, and then whatever he did not sell, he would plant. Because I went up there and met him, and he gave me a tour of his facility, and I bought some Pinot Noir from him. And that was my beginning into vinifera which I did expand later into Cabfrog, Cabsov, and Merlot as well in Amherstburg. But I did notice they were not as winter tolerant, so you were going to lose the crop every decade or so. And, of course, then you had to hill them up to protect the graft union. So
0: that was a whole different experience and equipment necessary to farm. So you were you were healing hilling up your vinifera. I'm guessing. I'm, I'm taking a look at, at the the timeline and everything. So this is in the early to mid '80s.
2: Oh yeah, that was, I would I went up to Niagara to get the grape uh That's where I met Consulman. Mm. Consulman was oh uh, he had a machine and he was driving up up and down the roads and I had pulled over. I was just sitting there watching him. Like I was watching him for a good half hour. So he saw me, and he stopped his tractor, and he come over. And he's just curious as to what I was doing. Of course, as any farmer, would be curious with some guy looking at his farm. And uh, he didn't talk to me. I remember. And then years later, when I had the pleasure of being introduced to, or I think it's Hubert Consulman. Herbert. Yep.
1: Herbert we'll talked to him on the podcast as
2: well. Yeah, you know, I had asked him why he didn't talk to me. And he said, I didn't speak English then. <laughs> he, we became friends as well. He was a, a great gentleman and was readily available to answer any questions I wanted. Because everybody was helping each other because it was a small industry. There was very little competitive nature. But I saw the Clemens Grapehole he had and what it did and what he was doing. And I had planted the hybrids in uh, May 84. And the vinifera didn't get planted till mm foggy now, but <laughs> I would say late 80s. And I knew they had to be healed up, which meant another investment in uh, a grape hoe, a healing attachment, a de attachment, etc. By that time, that was 87. The free trade agreement was announced. And the crop, because my Vidal, the first crop was 86, but it was Savant Blanc. And I only had one acre. I always planted an acre first because then I could do all the mistakes on the one acre. And then the next year, I would plant a bigger piece so I wouldn't repeat the mistakes. Hmm. And then the, the, the following year, I had planted five acres of Vidal and two acres of Foch. So the Vidal came in, and Foch came in production in 87. And I had about 40, 45 tons, I remember. And I I called up Colio, the winery, and asked for Carlo, and I was told he was no longer there. And I said, well, who do I talk to? I got a crop of grapes here that's going to be ripening shortly. And I was told that they would buy all the grapes. And the Jim Barry was his name. He informed me that I'm not on his growers list and he's not buying them. So I drove over to talk to him. And he invited me in his office. And he says, what would you like? I said, well, I have a verbal contract with Carlo Negri. He says, well, he's not here. That's a different story as to Carlos' story. And I said, well, verbal contract holds in court. What am I going to do with 45 tons of grapes? They're beautiful grapes, 22 bricks. So we come to an agreement that he would take them that year. And then we would discuss the contract in the future. So that settled that. He took the grapes. I made my wine. Personal use, but I then contacted a contractor and uh, got quotes on a building and started construction on a 5,000 square foot facility right off the bat. Mm. And the first thing I did was the following year, it was been '88. I was going to apply for a wine license, but I decided to wait a year to, to have more funds in order to buy tanks, etc., equipment. But in that year, because I waited. I became ineligible for a government grant. Would you believe that?
0: It's always strange how the government seems to, I don't know, it's its one of the things that I do find frustrating on behalf of the people who work in the wine business, even to this day in Ontario. Like we were, the, the wine industry was batted around like a toy when it came to a trade dispute with Australia. And it's almost as if the government to this day doesn't treat it with, the respect they could and should, and with the potential to grow. Like, there's no reason why the Canadian wine industry could not be on the par of, you know, a place like New York State or Oregon. Like, I, I definitely don't think we have the infrastructure there to be like California, but I mean, when we take a look at the big picture right now, it's, you know, the the barrier to entry is very difficult, and it's very difficult to navigate, and the government seems to just randomly throw curves in the road. You know, and it sounds like well, they didn't.
2: No, they had no. Uh, if you remember when Inneskilling opened, yep. The first year, Don Zeraldo and Carl Kaiser applied for the license; they were turned down. Yep. And I remember talking to Donald, and him and Carl. were Carl made wine that year under the Home Winemakers Act. You know, one barrel per person per a member of the household. And they the next year they uh, asked for another meeting. I forget who the head of the LCBO was at the time. And uh, I think they brought him a bottle. You'd have to confirm, Mr. Donald. Carl has passed. And the response was, "You know, I think it'd be cute if we had one cottage winery." That's what started it all. Being cute, this one cottage winery. He had. They had no expectation of the industry doing what we're doing today. None at all. They were just uh, how do you put it? The industry was there. It was Chateau Gay, Brights, Jordans, Andres. and they made a lot of bulk wine, brought wine in from other places, and paid their taxes and the government liked it exactly the way it was. And these big wineries didn't want us little guys starting up. No, not at all. I mean, if you talk to Paul Bosk, he worked at Chateau Gay, I believe. I remember Paul telling me when he uh, got hired, he asked why they're not growing Chardonnay. And they said, well, they, they're they not going to grow here. So Paul bought 50 acres and planted grapes. And when he informed his boss that they do grow here, they offered to buy them all. Well, Paul, he handed in his, his two weeks notice. He said, I'm starting a winery. Well, in my story, on my side, I started a juice business. I was going to crush Grapes sell juice because the free trade agreement cut the prices of the grapes from Vidal from a thousand dollars a ton down to five hundred bucks. Five hundred bucks. I couldn't believe it, so I, I got equipment and started squeezing it myself into fresh juice for home wine making, competing with the guy in Windsor who was bringing in the, the crates. So when did, and when then did the following year
1: I applied what, for a wine license. What Sal. like went yeah you open the doors of D'Angelo Estate? Well, the first vintage was
2: October 1989. And I applied for what they call a letter to, to ferment. You didn't get a license. You got permission to ferment to hold the alcohol. And then the following year, once you had made the wine and packaged it, you presented it to them and they put it through the lab, looked at your package, and then decided to give you a license or not. So you had to take it all the way to the end before you got a wine license. Wow. Right. And then I sold my first bottle of wine. It would have been summer of 90.
0: Wow. Okay. Um. What was the... So Who who bought your first bottle of wine? Were you selling to restaurants? Like... It, like you, it, it's clear that you were already hobnobbing with the who's who of Ontario wine at, at that point, but um, who was lining up to uh, to buy your first bottle of wine, Sal? My neighbours. And?
2: I sold it on site. When I found out how much a cut the liquor board took, there's no way I'm going to go through the board.
0: And what did your neighbours think?
2: Well oh, I... They were they became my best customers. <laughs> I was Amesburg's first winery. I was Cessus County's first farm winery, but I do believe there was a farm winery before me that opened and closed real quick. Kingsville Estate Winery. Think,
1: brother, I can't remember what they were in the LCDO very quickly.
2: Yeah, it was Kingsville Estate Winery by Trudy. They were they came from Germany. And right now on that farm is Master Nardi. Okay. They're on the same location. And they sold me my first grapevines, I remember. I bought a 1,000 vines of Savon Blanc from them. So then but when see- the Berlin Wall came down, her husband's family had land on the other side. And they were going to get compensated. Like to the tune of millions of dollars. They shut that winery down and went back to Germany. Oh, well. They gave they gave the keys to the Royal Bank. They didn't lose the farm. They gave it to them because the Royal Bank called me up. I was dealing with the Royal at the time, and I was the only uh, winery customer they had. And they they asked me if I would farm it until they sold it. And I declined, and I think Peely picked up the, the contract. Peely Winery farmed it until they sold it. And then Master Nardi, Tony, Master Nardi bought it. So then, so that was the first successful
1: farm winery. Okay. You, so how many how many wineries were there? Like so you've got Colio, Peely, and you. Is that that's the original three? Yeah. And then a friend of mine, close friends of mine,
2: uh, Pierre and Lise LeBlanc, had taken over the farm father's farm, and I believe I met Pierre at a wine tasting and he grew grapes and they were selling the fruit to Colio. And I talked him into starting a winery because we became friends at the time I was, excuse me, I was married. And the four of us, like almost every weekend we got together for cards and dinner and wine And uh, in time, uh, they did take the plunge. And then for the next decade, there was four of us, two large ones and two small ones. And the amount of effort and cooperation was extremely high, extremely good, probably unprecedented in other businesses because Pele and Colia went out of their way to help us because in order to have a wine route, You need wineries. You know, people don't go to Napa because there's four wineries. They go there because there's 300. Yeah. Just like where I'm at. I'm on the Naramata bench. Well, they don't come here because there's four wineries. There's 54. There's 54 wineries on my street.
0: So So that people don't visit every one, but it gives them a reason to come back. I know it's something we're going to want to want to come back on because I know it is the um, it is a heartbreaking thing, and I, I think it probably has more to do with proximity to Windsor and economic situation than anything else. But it's almost like, I mean, Michael and I even even point pointed out amongst each other that there's uh, one of the last remaining wine publications did a vintage report a couple of years ago, and the journalist did not even bother to mention the Lake Erie North Shore. They focused on Niagara in Prince Edward County and completely overlooked overlooked the region and even now like there's a good handful of wineries there some with with varying quality and there are some people um you know I'll give a shout out to Tom O'Brien right now who's working really hard to elevate the experience and try to bring a more premium experience to what's happening in the Lake Erie North Shore but it still just seems like the you, you sort of peaked at growth and things have 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 slowed down or stopped and I don't know if it's Due to the cost of real estate, due to tourism infrastructure. Um, I don't know if you want to touch on that before we go, because I know we're kind of telling your story in a more more linear way. But I mean, it's something like Michael and I, it's been near and dear to our heart that every time we get a chance to talk about the Lake Erie North Shore, we, we jump on it. Because we know there are people who are working really hard to uh, try to elevate that region. And, and the quality of the wines is good. And it's very different than Niagara.
2: Yeah, they are different. People have to remember the first winery in Canada was Vin Villa on Pele Island. That was 1865-67. It was owned by Americans. And when they sold it to the Canadians, the Canadians sold the wine company, pulled out the vines. Eventually, that wine company was, I think, sold to someone in Hamilton. the focus was always up in Niagara. Probably because they, they had more... Larger available land and growing fruit. And the escarpment does give them uh, winter protection. But we always
0: took a back seat, you're right. Well, and I think it's, you've, it's, even now, like, uh, 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 winemaking is is sort of, not sort of, winemaking is as much marketing as it is the product. And your, your passion will get you so far. But, you know, we haven't had a Moritas come and set up shop in the Lake Erie North Shore yet. Or a John Howard who set up megalomaniac there. What do you think is the is the reason why we haven't seen that like that that big cornerstone marquee producer show up and set up shop down on the on the Lake Erie North Shore?
2: Hard to say. People go, for example, uh, I know you want to focus on Essex County, but for example, here on the Narrabundah Bench, because my first bit visit here, there was no wineries. So it was slow to start. But once it took off, and the main reason it took off is the government lowered the minimum acreage requirement from 20 to 2. Two acres. Hmm. But once we had numbers of, say, 24, after that, people came because we were already here. Now, Esses County, I believe, has a dozen wineries, 16 wineries. That's about right. Yeah, something like that. I know quite a few have opened since I left, but mo- most—hard to say. You'd have to talk to people. Everybody's got a different story and different reasons. But most common thread is they're all passionate about wine.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Most of the people that I've talked to in Essex County, my guy helped. Uh, Dennis Sanson of Sanson Estate and mushadre they all had a passion and love for wine. And they lived there. They didn't come from somewhere. They were already there. I didn't come from somewhere. Well, I came from Italy, but I was only three years old. In other words, I grew up there. I wanted to live there. Same as Dennis and the rest of those people. They're, they're all from there. Don't know why there's a shift. I mean, Prince Edward County took off. I believe there's what thirty wineries up there.
0: Oh, I think it might even be more now. And I mean, this this is why the question's so important, and why I I asked it twice is, um, you know, obviously winter is a big concern for growing grapes, but it's not any more pleasant to the grapes in in Prince Edward County than it is in Lake Erie North Shore. You know?
2: No, it's not. But they're closer to Toronto, right? You've got a massive population that only has to drive, I believe it's less than 90 minutes.
0: Yep. Bingo, you're in wine country. Well, and even then the number of people from Ottawa too who make the trek down there, like proximity to urban centers is definitely definitely key to uh to the success there.
2: Right, and our big city was Windsor. Well, and it and- was also there was back then there was also a lot of animosity between domestic wine there we go in other words people would uh it would buy local wine but when they wanted something special they buy imported and i remember an employee i had that was an immigrant from europe and he worked for me for a couple of years and then he moved on he came to visit me once, years later, after he became a Canadian citizen and uh, had his own business and he was successful. He didn't buy any of my table wines. He came back for one product. That was ice wine. Hmm. And I asked him, I said, well, do you, do you not like reds? He goes, oh, yeah, if I want a good red, I'll get Italian or French. See what I mean? The attitude was, if you want quality, when you got money, you buy imported, which I think is uh, misplaced. There's quality in all regions, and there's mediocre wine from all countries. Depends on the market. I mean, Canada can stand up to any country in winemaking. We're now... uh, for us here, I am now releasing our first thread made from the Apazimento uh, method. Okay. Apparently the, the VQA here in BC told me on uh, last Friday that they don't have a category for it because no one's ever made it. So I'm yeah. now the first one to make a Apazimento method. I said, well, you should mirror what Ontario's doing. You merely add a clause to the vindicure category right below it. And you have to change some of the minimum bricks levels. Done. But the, method of adding or changing legislation is different for each province so I don't know what they're going to do yet
0: but I'm going to submit the wine anyways okay I guess we, we talked to you a bit about when your winery opened who your first customers were um, you've said several times on this podcast now that you're on the Naramata bench What what got you out of Ontario and out west yeah, what made you leave? Yeah, that's the question. Well, I mentioned earlier I'm a
2: research holic. When I, I, I'm interested in something, I like to make myself informed, shall we say? And part of my research back in the '70s, uh, we didn't have schools in Canada to go to take viticulture and winemaking onology. You had to go to that. Uh, I'm hoping all the young people hear this. We had to go to a place called a library. (laughs) We didn't have internet. You had to buy books, you know, those things made out of paper. So when we'd go fishing in the summer with the family up north, I'd bring six, seven wine books with me. Uh, Well, part of this research wasn't just winemaking. It was also vineyards and locations throughout the whole world. I read about everything I'd get my hands on. And then this thing popped up one day. I was researching Okanagan Valley, which was British Columbia. And I decided to take a trip out here to check it out. And would have been 1980 I came out, but I didn't buy anything. I was actually still in the layoff stage, was I had to find a job. And I did apply for an electrician's job in, uh, in Alberta. But eventually, I went back to university. And then I still kept thinking about the Okanagan because I kept reading about it. And I read about Lloyd Schmidt and Harry McWatters and what they were doing. I still have a book, a gift from Lloyd. Of Great Fridays he gave me. Anyways, I came back in March '87. Because the winter of 86, I remember December 1st was minus 15. And it stayed minus 15. January, February, that was a deep freeze. Long, cold winter. And my cousin wanted to go to Cuba. And I wanted to go to BC. And he laughed at me. He had a map of Canada in his wine cellar. And he looked at the, uh,
0: what would you call that, on the globe? Latitude? Uh, I can yep. never remember the difference between latitude and longitude.
2: <laughs> yeah, he he drew it. He looked at it, and he went with his finger. He says, Okanagan, Kelowna, the same as Thunder Bay. What are you, crazy? He says it's going to be minus 40. So I made him a bet. I said, if we land in Mac- Vancouver, and it's below freezing. I'll pay for your ticket. Of course, I won that bet. It was 68 degrees Fahrenheit, and the sun was shining. And by the time we pulled into the Penticton on March 3rd, I believe, 87, the sun was shining. There was sailboats on the lake. There was no wineries here, but there was, I think, one or two vineyards. And I had uh, my page from the Grape Atlas. Are you familiar with the Grape Atlas?
0: Uh, who's Who's I the writer of the Grape? At one point. I'm not familiar with the, gra- the Grape. I'm, I'm sure I've heard a few people mention it, but...
2: Yeah, there was a study and research done by the uh, Federal Agriculture Research Center, Summerland, B.C., across the lake from me. Similar to what Harrow has. Harrow has an agricultural research station there, but they weren't interested in grapes. That's a whole different story. But they they produced this atlas, and it's quite large, physically large, about two feet wide by three feet long. And each area... All the way up and down the Okanagan, I believe in the Similkameen Valleys, were researched. You have temperature data, snowfall, radiation, sunlight, soil type, you name it. And each area had like five categories, with the fifth one being overall rating for grape growing. And I had ripped out that section for, because I had deduced from Dr. Andy Reynolds. Do you know Andy Reynolds?
0: I do not. Michael?
1: Uh, does not ring a
2: bell. Andy Reynolds was a research scientist of the Summerland Research Station. And he had sent me weather data by that new invention called the fax machine. Remember those? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, he had data going back 72 years from the weather stations in the valley. I was surprised. And I had that data, and what I was looking for was the warmest night of the coldest winter. In other words, when you get a cold snap, how cold does it get, and where's the warm spot? That warm spot was near my bench. And I had that sheet ripped off, and from then on, I came back here every year, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92. I didn't come in 93 because 93, I contracted Guillain-Barre I was paralyzed from the neck down. So that put a damper into my uh, activities, shall we say. But I did deduce that this was the best spot. And uh first cold snap I experienced was November 06. It was minus 29 in Kelowna. Oof. Yeah, it was minus 24 in Oliver, minus 27 in while well, our Naramata bench was minus 18. Wow. I already okay. had my vineyard up and running. Cab, Fran- Cab Franc, Cab Soft, Merlot, Petit Spardot, Malbec, Pinot Noir, and Tempranillo.
0: Okay, okay. And... So I guess that, that answers the, the next question. Like, you've got your vineyards up and running in, in, in Naramata. Did you... Feel the need to experiment with hybrids when you went out west, or was it just straight on to vinifera, Like the best practices had already been established.
2: No, straight to vinifera. Okay, we don't hill up here. Yeah, it's not necessary. Okay, we, well, we practice no till.
1: You had you had uh, your Ontario vineyard, and you had your BC vineyard
2: uh, at the same time. Yes, because the uh, see in Ontario, I had three farms by that time. And the plan was to sell the Amersburg farm to raise funds to build the new winery on the location of Viewpoint Viewpoint Estate Winery. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that was my property, and I had two farms there, and one of them was owned with three partners. And the decision was made to sell it because the Amersburg property wasn't selling well. The Colchester property that sold quite quickly. Obviously, it had 800 feet of beach. So the Amersburg property was left up for sale. It was already for sale. I, I had not bought or had any intention of buying in BC yet. But the partners in the Colchester property uh, had decided to sell. So when that decision was made. I'm no longer obviously going to build a new winery there because the first crops were coming off. So I flew out here and decided to expand here, realizing that long dream of having a vineyard in on the Naramata Bench. And eventually the Ontario property sold in uh, February 2017.
0: Okay, so this is recently, like the... Like, uh... D'Angelo Estate Winery existed until, I guess that's only five years ago.
2: Yeah. It never sold. Nobody wanted to buy it.
1: Wow. And did it, did, do you know who bought it? Is, is it going to be at a winery again?
2: Yeah, it's called Vivace.
1: A Chinese lady bought it. Got it. So, uh, I guess we should ask, are you happier out in British Columbia than you were in Ontario? Well, my condition,
2: my Guillain it's a, autoimmune disorder that similar to MS but the difference is MS doesn't go away and it's fatal where GB you get the worst in the first 10 days and then it can take up to 10 years to go away so it mine did take 10 years I had a cane for 10 years I always felt better out here in a dry climate mm. I live in Canada, one of Canada's only deserts Mhm. Very, very
0: dry here. I guess other than and then for health reasons, the question I've got is obviously being of Italian descent and I'm guessing your family is still drinking your wines. What do they think about the wines that you're making now?
2: Well, the same as Ontario. They like my wine. They like them there. They like them here. But I can plant here... Like in 2018, we planted Montepulciano, and this spring I'm going to release the first Chiano in Canada. Wow! I, plant, I planted Tempranillo in '04, and that was the first temp in BC. Now there's about six of us. Someone planted temp in Essex County that froze; it all died.
1: Yeah, I think somebody tried to grow it in Niagara as well.
2: Yeah, it's it's not winter hardy. I still have an acre and a half, and I'm planting another acre and a half this year. I'm right on the lake, so I do have, uh, definitely have the lake effect.
1: So it sounds like, besides health-wise, you're much happier out in British Columbia.
2: Yes, I am happier.
1: Uh, The tax structure is different, too. And is is it more beneficial? There's less liquor tax
0: here. So it's easier, is it easier, are the margins easier to uh, make a go at it out in BC? Absolutely. Think about
2: getting seven tons an acre at 25 bricks.
0: Well, I I can't imagine it.
2: (laughs) Uh, You want good, good sugar level in Ontario, you've got to thin down to two, three tons an acre. There's no getting around that. Right? Fair fair point. Now on top of that, it costs you more to grow the grapes. You get less for the wine. And when you sell the wine, you pay more tax. I remember getting a call from the Royal York Hotel. Because my 91 Marichal Foch got a gold medal. And it scored very highly at the Cuvée Awards. I think it got second place. And I refused them, they refused to sell them a case of wine. And he says, that's, we're the Royal York. I said, I don't care if you're the Queen Mother. I'm not paying the LCBO 67% of my profits to have the right to sell to you. Wow. At the time, there was no direct delivery. If you sold to a restaurant at the end of the month, you had to fill out this form and pay the liquor board their cut, and they had nothing to do with it. If the three of us did that in private business, we'd go to jail. That's against the law, but not the liquor board. That wasn't until the VQA came into existence. And I was at that meeting. And the first, I remember, I was with Walter and Carlo. We were driving to Niagara to go to the wine council meeting. And the agenda for the coming summer was being discussed and there was an item on there i remember and the item was called direct delivery without paying the taxes the liquor board markup and i told walter on the way up i said walter they're not gonna listen to me i'm just a little guy but billy's got some clout he said what's your point i said if you could save 65% because you sell mostly through the liquor board. But you also have five, four or 500 acres of grapes. You need to make a lot more money without having to pay the LCBO 65% to have the right to sell to a restaurant. That's wrong. I said, you should put that as a policy, as a goal of the Wine Council. They took it. And when the vote came, the big wineries, of course, were against it. But Vincor, at the time, was always against anything the little guys did. Because every time we grew, they shrank. Hmm. Anyway, the decision was made to apply... Because one thing the Ontario LCBO did do is, every time there was a policy change, they would ask for the White Council's input. Even the five-acre minimum that Ontario now has. That was a recommendation put forward by the Wine Council, they took that. Well, this next one was to have direct delivery without paying the markup. Yeah. And the Wine Council voted to to not include 100% Ontario wine in that request, but only VQA wine. I said, well, they're one and the same. He says, no, they're not. You can have an Ontario wine not be VQA. I said, well, yes, you can, but why not just have Ontario wine with an audit? He said, Well, you can't prove that it's 100% Ontario. He said, That's what audits are for. I wanted everyone included. Anyways, it was agreed to after the, after the hammer came down. You know what happens at a meeting when the hammer comes down, right? It's not recorded. Yeah. Right. They did that on purpose. They said, Well, we'll apply for VQA exemption and we'll come back for 100% Ontario exemption later. And I turned to Walter and I said, Walter, somebody write this down because it's never going to happen. And it never did. And then the LCBO accepted it. VQA sales to restaurants do not have to pay the markup. No business should have to pay another business the right to sell in that market. That's plain wrong.
0: And I hate to, I hate to cut this short, but I think that's as good a place as any to, to at least stop it for now. Sal, I'm sure we'd love to have you on again in the future, but I really, really appreciate you breaking that down with us. And also, the uh, the last few minutes of this podcast, hearing about the eliminating of the markup, I can't imagine where the wine industry right now would be if that hadn't taken place. So I want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. You're welcome. Anytime.
1: Andre, the the one thing that we really didn't get a, a chance to talk to uh, Sal about was some of his innovative wines. Um, I know that, uh, that I still have somewhere in the cellar Some of his Foch ice uh, that was made in a very unique style, Uh, and we should have Sal back because he's got all kinds of information. And sometimes the man has a really good axe to grind. Uh, And after the podcast that we recorded, he sent me some other facts and figures about why he left Ontario. So uh, it was great to hear Sal. And as we got him there, he really started to to rant and rave. Near I know
0: that that whole back half of the podcast was eye opening. Um, I. I am just curious if we've had any other people be so frustrated with the bureaucracy in Ontario that they would avoid doing business here altogether. And I don't know if there's anyone at the government, at the AGO, or, or yeah, at any of the adjacent ministries that listen to this podcast. But I mean, you, you, you've hopefully someone's paying attention to the fact that you're you're literally cutting off your nose despite your spite your face here in terms of making it so difficult to do uh, wine business in Ontario.
1: Well, I I know that, uh, you know, quietly behind the scenes, when I talk to winemakers, and I'm sure you have too, uh, some of them, one, can't wait to get out, or owners, obviously, uh, can't wait to get out. And, you know, they always say, I could write a book about all the problems I've had. And I don't think anybody's done that yet either.
0: Well, I guess it's more stuff for us to research and unpack. We've got plenty of time
1: to do it. It was just I'll have to tell you, Andre, it was just wonderful to hear Sal that he's doing well and that he's uh, still making wine and still and still innovating even out there in the uh, in the Okanagan.
0: Definitely. Uh, I guess on that note, I'm Andre proof under winereview.ca, and uh, check out patreon.com slash
1: two guys stalking wine. We always appreciate the support. And I'm Michael Pincus of Michael um, as away. always. Uh, You can find us on our social media handles, and you know what? There's only one thing to say now, Andre. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.